what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back, everybody. Nice to have you with us. Today, it's just us, so we are going to talk about puppies. Puppy raising, puppy development. There's a lot of things that you can actually talk about with puppies. I thought we would start this episode off by talking about from the original mating of the pair, Mm -hmm. the male and female, into gestation, into puppy raising for people to actually select a puppy Mm -hmm. and then on from there. So you'll have the helm early because I have never bred a dog in my life Mm. and probably won't. It's not something that sort of interests me that much, mostly because I live in a tiny townhouse and there's no way that I can have. We thought about breeding Belle for a little while and then the idea of 10 springers running around in my yard just put me off completely. And she's desex now, right? She is now, yeah. Yeah, what, What age did you get her done? She was just before she turned four. Okay. As you know, I run David's kennel for him, Sartscom. So mm-hmm. quite some time ago, he was buying German Shepherds and Roddies from various different breeders. And when I come up to work for him, he was speaking to me about it. And he said, what do you think about us breeding our own dogs together? And I said, I think that would be a good idea. I said, mm-hmm. I think we can manage it, select, and that way we get first crack at what's coming out of the litters. Yeah. So there's been a couple of times where we've bred dogs, Shepherds and Roddies, where we've actually had been able to you actually get the ability to choose the dog that you want at that time. Well, that's exactly the point, I think. Everyone I know that breeds dogs well is trying to breed their own dog and then they've got others as well. Mm. You know, that breeding for what they want Yep. and then they sell other puppies because, you know, how many do you have in a litter to get the one that you want? I know this is a trigger point for people who are in rescue and are heads and tails into rescue only. Mm -hmm. However, I support that and I'm not going to try and make this a politically correct episode in saying we breed but we support rescue as well because we do, Mm -hmm. actually, we do. We recommend and we've rescued our own dogs before. We've had issues with it, you know, where people haven't done the right thing and that's been very, very few people because we have a rigorous routine into doing that. However... There are people that say you shouldn't be breeding. There's so many dogs out there you should be uh, rescuing. I don't entirely agree with that. There's a lot of reasons why. We're going to talk to, I think at some stage we're going to talk to Dallas. She's been heavily involved in rescue. There's a lot of people heavily involved in rescue and God bless them, they do a great job. Mm -hmm. Because rescue is a punishing industry to be in because although it can be rewarding, it can be very painful and there's a lot of emotions that are soaring in rescue. Uh, I've been involved with rescue with the Rottweiler Club for years and so forth, but this episode is not about rescue. So I just want people... Before we go on to rescue, you guys do a lot of work with rescue here, like in that... Of course, yeah. The the student dogs on NDTF are often rescue dogs and then they get sort of end up in homes and that sort of thing, right? Right. Well, we open ourselves to rescue organisations bringing their dogs on site while we're doing NDTF. Mm-hmm. So we house them, feed them for free, and they get the training. So we yeah. don't charge for anything. It's a product, well, not a product, it's a service that is good for everybody. It's a win win yeah. for everybody. It's a win yeah. for the dog, it's a win for the organisation. 
and it's a win for anybody who eventually goes to adopt the dog. Yeah. Because it highlights the chances of the dog being rescued at some stage. Yeah. I've seen many times people, like students, sort of fall in love with their dog that they're using and then either take it themselves or find a they then go out of their way to find a home for that dog. So it's, it's a great situation for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, if anybody, we've got a lovely little staffy here that's been here for quite some time. The owners just can't keep him. They've been doing the right thing by him. They pay to have him here. But if anybody is looking for an, a lovely little staffy, he's a beautiful boy. He's been up on the Pet Resorts dual page a couple of times. If you are looking for a nice little staffy to, to be part of your home, I know it's a bit of a shameless plug, but we still want to do the right thing and we encourage the right thing for, for rescue dogs. So come and talk to us. We'd mm-hmm. love to find a home for him. Okay, so we've, we're off the hook. We've ticked the box for we rescue. Have, we've ticked the box. So now we can talk about how we much rather breed dogs. <laughs> we, well, yeah, as I said, this is not a rescue episode. episode. It's not a rescue episode. We're talking about the actual raising and selection and mating of, of dogs to produce puppies. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this from the get-go is in one of our episodes, we we're talking to Narelle, my wife, mm-hmm. and we happen to mention epigenetics, which is the effect of your environment and your feelings and the situations that you're encountering, which are switching mechanisms in your genes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've heard it recently. It's been on the on the news on and off about how mothers need to be careful when they're taking antibiotics and so forth before they have children or while they're pregnant because yeah. it can have an effect and seriously compromise the immune system in babies. Mm-hmm. Well, this same thing needs to be thought of when people are doing matings with their dogs. Yeah. Okay, so prior to doing the mating, you have to think of optimum health for the sire and the dam when you're about to think about producing a litter of puppies. So a lot of people at that point in time, they start smashing the dog with worm treatment, with flea and tick treatment, with vaccinations, with all sorts of things, which I personally think should be done well and truly before matings take place. Mm -hmm. It seems to be one of those things where people think, I'm doing this mating, oh, I forgot to vaccinate the dog or I forgot to worm the dog. And all of a sudden they start blasting the dog with a cocktail of medications and vaccinations which I don't know, I haven't got the science, I don't have the facts, but personally I don't feel comfortable with it. I don't think that's a good time to do it just before a litter of puppies is being planned. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to do that sort of stuff, power to you, no problem, support it. You know, I don't want to see a dog getting parvo and I don't want puppies getting parvo and I don't want pups riddled with ticks and fleas and all sorts of things. 100% don't want any of that nonsense going on. But don't do it just while your puppies are gestating or well just before you're planning to do a mating. Mm-hmm. So these things I believe have an important point on how the puppies are actually, how they gestate well and how they're produced ultimately. My advice to anybody who's thinking about doing anything like that is get your ducks in a row. Start setting it up properly. Have a plan from the start. I'm going to mate this female. I'm going to mate this male. When were their vaccinations? Do it well and truly or like if they've still got plenty of time, get a titer test or teeter test or whatever you want to call it. If you're going to worm them, do it well and truly before they have a window that's available. So say the mating is going to be done at this stage, worm the female well and truly before that. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be times during gestation that you can use a, a mild wormer so the pups don't get worms passed on to them or you lessen the chance of it happening. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world if puppies get worms because they do eat 
garbage and shit anyway. Mm. So we're going to worm them. Exactly, they're going to be worm. But they're going to be worm them themselves. So there's a there's a worm plan with puppies. But the same thing is that we don't want to be blasting young puppies with heavy cocktails from very very young ages and just exposing them to the, all those sort of things. You do have to do certain things. There are certain requirements. There are certain legal requirements for vaccinating puppies, state by state federally, et cetera. And there's an ethical thing which we have to do as well. But I'm saying to people, just as we did that episode where we were talking about feeding, good type of feeding for pups and so forth, we need to also think about the types of things that we're introducing into young puppies, mm-hmm. you know, or in gestation period or pre-mating that we're, you know, and I think I've covered that base fairly well. Yeah. So everything's all going to plan. We've sat down, we've, we either own the stud or we're introducing a stud to our female or vice versa. And I think all those things need to be applied. So first and foremost, what we need to do is have healthy parents in the best possible condition we can have them in. So if they're being eating a good selection of foods, if they're in tip-top condition, it's the same as our parents. If our parents are smoking and drinking and parting up while they're having us, good chance that it can have an effect on us as a fetus and ultimately later in life as an adult. The risks are exponential on you developing problems later in life or even early in life based on your parents' choice. So why not think about the same thing when you're doing a mating with your dog? And this is some things that you want to ask your breeders. Mm -hmm. Are you doing the right thing? How was the female raised during the time where pre-puppies and during gestation and during birth, et cetera, et cetera? What type of stress was she enduring? So that's another thing that people don't even consider or don't put a lot of time into is how much stress was the female going through pre, during, and after having puppies. Yeah. In utero, stress is a, a big deal, right? Absolutely. In people as well. And that's something, well, I mean, when Jane was pregnant, it was something we focused on heaps because mm. you, you pass that straight on. There's heaps of research. There's heaps of literature on that people can look at, and that's a real, real thing. Exactly the same in dogs. If mum's stressing out or if she's- If you're um, producing high cortisol levels, you're passing that through the umbilical cord into your offspring. Yeah. So, and, and damaging, and um, damaging. production and, mm. and development. Mm. It's very vital that people start to have a little bit of a sit down and think about that process and then you're giving your puppy the best start to life to be as complete as it possibly can be. The minute it's born, you've got a brand new building block to go from there. Mm-hmm. I'm adamant on that type of thing. Even what you're feeding the female while she's gestating, while she's producing milk, rather than just going out and buying crappy sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can actually feed the female on. And again, going back to that raw diet that we were talking about before or the mix of diets where you can have some raw, some kibble, I believe this is essential in making sure that that whatever she's passing through a milk is gained in nutrition by the pups as well. Yeah, totally. Mm. And so what about choosing, and for you guys, like there's a lot of work involved in choosing the mating, right? It's not as simple as this is what annoys me sometimes as you see, like why did you ask people, why did that mating go ahead? And they said, well, they're the two dogs I had available, right? Instead of a real thought out process of, I like this trait in the mother. I like this trait in the father. They both have this trait. I'm trying to create it, you know, whatever it is. And it's a thought out process and it, you know, I'm trying to create something in particular instead of these are just the two dogs I have in my yard, so they're going to mate. Yeah, that's a that's been a long-term controversial topic through a lot of groups. A lot of people have talked about this and people have said, what are you trying to produce? Some people are trying to produce pocket money. Yeah. That's pure and simple. There's a lot of people out there even now who talk about themselves as being ethical. Well, they've 
got the ethical standards of a pot plant, mm. which is not much. Well, you know, I see it, especially in working dogs, people breeding the two dogs they have, and they might be from totally different bloodlines, but then what are the chances of the best mating that could be done being done with the two dogs that you just happen to own instead of like having a look around and deciding, okay, this is what I want to do. But then you've got to go to someone else and you've got to pay the money and you've got to negotiate how that's going to go. That's the easiest idea for people just to go, oh, well, these are two dogs I have. So they're the ones that are going to produce, even though they, they're not a good combination or potentially not a good combination, but it still happens. So that, that really pisses me off when I see people breeding dogs, especially for work when they, it's just the two they have. Mm. Convenience is often, well, I think in, in one podcast, and again, I think it was the feeding one, I talked about convenience being king. Yeah. And that's one of the problems that generally we all face is that we look at it and say, well, I've got a dog here and I've got a female, so why don't we just use these two? Now, in some cases, I know a lot of breeders who are fortunate that they have got a great dog and female combination in their backyard and they can use it. And they've usually done that for that purpose. Like you guys Mm. have Max here and you use him, but he came in for that purpose. He's not like you just had this German Shepherd lying around and now you use him. Like he came in to be a stud dog. Oh, absolutely. And I mean- They've paid quite a bit of money for him at the time, you know, like he wasn't just just lying around. He wasn't just lying around. We spent quite a bit of time with his previous owner, David Ayres, a lovely bloke, and, yeah, he brought him out. He let him stay here for a week before we decided that it was going to be the right fit. Mm -hmm. We tested the dog. We looked at his pedigree. We spoke to a few people. Even Ed Frawley from Leeburg was Mm -hmm. one of them. We spoke. Dave got in contact with him about some of the... The, he knows um, those bloodlines pretty He knows well. the bloodlines. He's used them in his own breeding before and subsequently because we've got him and because of the type of dog he is and his pedigree, other people have used him around Australia and yeah. um, people in New Zealand have used him. So we get inquiries about him quite regularly because he's he's a lovely dog. And, really that, and that's exactly the I mean, process. I mean, you know him well. He's, yeah, he's chewed well. on you quite a few times. But that's exactly the process we're talking about, right? And it's just not he's a dog that is – Easy and available. He wasn't easy to get. He wasn't cheap, but mm. he, he he's a good producer. And now he goes. Other people bring him in to use. Like other good breeders use him as well. Yeah, he is a good producer, and he's producing type, which is great. So we've got him. We've got the luxury of having him in our backyard, which is yeah, which is fantastic. But we've used dogs outside our breeding program, gone to other people to use their stud, or or actually bought their puppies from them. Mm-hmm. So if we're not producing exactly what we want. You know, we're not too proud to say let's go and talk to another breeder because there are some fantastic breeders. I mean, we've used pups from Monsimbi before. Mm-hmm. Not pups, I shouldn't say. We've used stud dogs from Monsimbi and, and um, Karen and Brad have used Max in their matings before. So Yeah, it's important, those cooperative relationships. It is important that people are looking around and I think one of the issues that people get is they, they get kennel blind. Yeah, 100%. They start to think that what they're producing is just perfect. Yeah. And in some cases, it may be. You know, there have been times where I've seen people producing different types of dogs from field dogs to working dogs or whatever, but the standard of the dog that they're producing is actually very nice. Mm. You get away with it then. You get away with it. If you're onto a good thing, why change it? If it it ain't broke, don't try fixing it. Yeah. However, there are times where people start to get a little obsessed with line breeding their dogs too much. Yeah. Well, famously there's that. Oh, how many generations does he think it is? 26 generations of brother-sister matings? Yeah. It's madness. Total fucking madness. Well, it is. I mean, and you look at the effects that incest has in human relationships. Yeah. and It's disaster. It, it is disaster. And, and people have had those same sort of ancestral issues with their dogs where they keep breeding 
mother to daughter and over and over and then back to that offspring and it's, yeah. yeah. And you just, comp- I mean, the issue for people who don't understand is you just compound any problem. Any small niggling problem that might never represent itself is almost guaranteed to eventually come forward when you just keep stacking those genetics on top of each other. There is the belief, and it has been touted around for quite some time, that by doing that type of heavy line breeding that you can ultimately produce a super dog with super genetics. But a lot of dogs have to go through the yeah. shit milkshake before you yeah, actually leave. That's right. It's like the movie Twins with Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Well, even the people, even the, the strong advocates for family bloodlines will tell you that you have to have numerous going at once because the, the chances of disaster and just completely it falling apart are very high. Yeah, well, I mean, people have produced entire litters of dogs that are just warped. Yeah, it's a disaster. They're just not right. In those type of things, you need to be very careful. So we've now discussed the whole concept of that kind of gestational period and producing the puppy. So we've got a litter of puppies on the ground. This is where for anybody who is going to be selecting a puppy into the future that they need to know that the person who is responsible for the breeding is now doing the right thing by those pups and mm. the dam. And and I remember speaking to Mike Suttle when he was out here and he was talking about, and he did in his seminar as well, but he was talking about how he doesn't even like putting the, the female in a stressful situation, that in utero stress, or even when she's got the puppies on the ground, she doesn't want the people going up there and stressing her out where mm-hmm. she's at the cage being put in a situation of fight or flight where, look, he doesn't want that sort of genetics in his bloodline anyway from what he's producing. But the thing that you don't want your puppy seeing is mimicking a behaviour that the bitch is producing. Yeah, good point. Mm. You need to be also mindful. We've advanced a little bit there. You need to be mindful that they're raising the puppies correctly, that they're limiting exposure, limiting stress, but also doing gentle handling with the puppies at the same time. Mm -hmm. Even while I've got young puppies, and I know a lot of breeders do this, and I, I recommend it, is some gentle touching and handling, which you should be doing anyway when you're weighing and you're checking to make sure there's the pups are healthy and uh, there's no infection or no issue taking place. You know, you want your vet to check over the puppies. You want to be constantly checking the puppies. You want to be constantly weighing them to make sure that they're putting on weight, that they're healthy, they look healthy, they're suckling well, they're, they seem right, okay, because it'll be evident very soon when you've got a litter of pups. Look, we've had pups on the ground where things seem to be going fine and then all of a sudden we'll lose a pup mm-hmm. and there's no reason why that pup just perished. Now, sometimes it can be that the female rolls on the puppy we lose it that way, but there are other times where there'll be some sort of sickness. I think in those situations, it's probably fortunate the pup passed young rather yeah. than enduring a lifetime of problems. And exactly. it's certainly something that we don't want to offload onto a new owner is that we're giving him a pup that we produced and said he's kind of got something wrong with him and hopefully... So if you're doing everything right and you lose a puppy, it's probably for the best that it happened because that would... I mean, if, if you're treating them like shit in shit conditions and you lose them, well, that's on you. But if everything is clean and you're going well and mum's producing well and, and one passes, that was it was never going to make it anyway. I, I, and I think it's safe to say that it was meant to be. You said it really well in one of the episodes we did about the Jurassic Park quote where nature finds a way. Mm. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes nature just eliminates a problem earlier on. So we've seen pups that have been born mummified, seen pups that have born stillborn, which yep. is, you know, look, it's never a pleasant thing. And even the great people that we've got helping us and involved with our breeding program, it's still alarming for them to have to be involved in that. You know, yeah. it's never poor kids. Sometimes they do like little burials for the pups. And, 
they're pretty wrapped up in it because it's for them it's uh it's not just a I'm producing just a a, a litter of whatever but they're, you know the, the, that's the thing though the point is it, it happens it, it it can be common it does and happen. that's that's why dogs have litters instead of individuals because mm. the, the chances of it's survival it are is not survival. that high yeah mm. When do you start actually right from the day they're born, you're handling these puppies, right? Right from the day they're born. Yeah. So immediately the day they're born, we try not to stress the female out too much. Mm-hmm. We just test how she's feeling about being handling. Some of the females are really welcoming. They're quite happy for you to come in. They're quite happy for you to touch them. Some are really edgy about it. They're, some might be okay with a person mm-hmm. but not another person. Yeah. One of the girls that does our whelping for us, she does a fantastic job and her husband can't go in with some of the dogs. Yeah. Like some of them are fine and go in the room. Some of them won't let him in the room. And she just has to say to him, look, you just have to stay away. Even his voice can sometimes aggravate her. So she just says, look, it's making her stressed. Stay away. Just let me deal with it. And yep. she'll calm down in time. And generally they do. After a period of time, they kind of start realizing that people being around the puppies isn't such a bad thing. And they're kind of looking forward to getting a break from them anyway. Mm-hmm. And even myself, I won't go around and look at the pups or do much with them in the early days because I don't want to put the female in that much stre- yeah. uh, that much of a stressful situation. So I'll wait until they're at a certain age. Then I'll go and have a look at them when when she's got time to bond with them. They're generally by the time their eyes and ears are open because I'm already passing on the coaching that I need to have done, and I don't even need to do that now. So. The girls that have been involved with us, they've been fantastic at raising pups. They're also fantastic at raising and training dogs as well. Mm. They know the gentle handling procedures. They know how to check weights. They know how to detect problems early in the dogs. In fact, they've, they're just brilliant at seeing that there's an issue beforehand and raising any red flags. Or when there's no problems, they're brilliant at making sure there's an optimal situation for those puppies. And you are weighing them every day? Every day. Yeah. Sometimes multiple times a day. So even when I've been involved in doing pups myself, I've got baby scales. So they're down to grams in yep. weights. So we're checking weights every single day and we're just making sure that we're doing, you know, the dehydration tests on the puppy, which is just lightly pinching the skin and twisting it and the skin should snap back. It should have an elasticity to it. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have that, if it doesn't snap back, then obviously there's a problem and we get the vets involved. Mm-hmm. So there's... The first two weeks in raising puppies is hell weeks. Um, yeah, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand as well. Like, oh, you know, it's natural. Dogs just do it themselves. Mm. And, and sure, like that is possible, but not that's not best practice, right? So best practice raising puppies is a disaster. It's a full-time job. Well, if you're orchestrating this, you're responsible from, you know, like – Raising puppies and raising dogs, you you sort of, even if you're, if you're a breeder, you have a little bit of a responsibility, not a little bit, let me rephrase that. If you're a breeder, you have a responsibility ensuring that your dog from the womb to the tomb has the best possible outcome it can, it yeah. can have. So in your selection of pairing partners, your nutrition and everything that I talked about before onto passing it on to its home and everything that they're doing from there, you know. So we're going to talk about the breeder's handshake in a minute. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. So you're weighing them every day, you're gently touching. At what point do you start feeding them? We start introducing foods around four to five weeks and mild foods too that aren't too invasive on their little stomachs. So like what kind of thing? Things like um, farrax. We introduce farrax and a, a type of so sometimes we might use Biolac mixed in, which is a milk substitute, which mm-hmm. you can raise successfully raise puppies on. 
like anything, it's advisable that you try and keep them on the female as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. But uh, eventually what we'll do is we'll introduce things like Farax, which is a rice substitute with some biolac in it. People have got different things that they like to do. We find this is gentle for the pups. And we kind of, like you wouldn't in yourself and your own babies, we measure it on how their stools are after they're yeah. eating it. So if they're, you know, if they've got explosive diarrhea, there's a problem with what they're eating and you have to modify it. From there, we'll start mixing it in with a bit of cottage cheese. We do some sardines and we start introducing a fine-grade mint, so a human-grade mint mm-hmm. with, a, with a lot of fat stripped out of it. So we'll introduce that and after a period of time, they're just smashing that. Yeah. So as soon as their teeth start cutting through, as soon as you can start feeling like teeth cutting in and the females starting to get Getting red, sick of them. Yeah, they start getting, they'll indicate to you I'm sick of these little piranhas. At that point in time, for us by six weeks, we've got the female out of there generally. Mm-hmm. So she might be around or she might be totally weaned off them at that stage. By seven weeks, they're drinking fresh, clean water. So we don't have them on milk anymore. We have them, we're substituting. So we give them fresh, clean water. Um, we introduce them into the home with fresh, clean water and they get all their nutrition through their food mm-hmm. rather than having them on on milks, which can be a disaster for them and, and so forth going into homes because people can overdo it or underdo it and, you know, if they think that's where they're getting all their sources of calcium from and everything, then they can create a problem for that. Yeah. So what we prefer to do is have them fresh, clean water, a good kibble mixed in with a good raw feeding plan as well. So mm-hmm. things like cottage cheese. We give them yogurt, a thing like Jolna yogurt, and we give them a little teaspoon of or half a teaspoon of Jolna yogurt, maybe once, twice a day, some fresh veggies thrown in there. So I think I've said sardines in natural vegetable oil and a fine-grade mince as well. Yep. And generally a, a puppy-grade kibble mixed in with it as well. It's a combined raw feeding program from puppies onwards. Found that they do very well on it. Again, we measure how well puppies are coping with their absorption of their food by keeping an eye on their stools. Look, I've used some kibble foods before that produce some really terrible types of stools where other ones, they're good, they're firm, the puppies look healthy and and that's a good indicator if the puppies are lively, if they're running around, if they're active, yeah. you know, if they're busy little pups and they're hungry and they're vivacious in their behaviour, then you know that you're, you're doing a right thing. Again, it can be a little bit of a trial and error. And look, some pups will do fantastic on one type of kibble and then you'll get a litter that you'll they just don't seem to be doing well on it. So yeah. I don't know what changed. I don't know if there's, you know, that there's been an intolerance in the gestation period or something like that. But, you know, it can be the same female with the same litter of puppies, yet she'll do, um, her pups will do well on one type of kibble and the others won't. Right. So a little bit of trial and error. A little bit space. of trial and error. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I, I see you guys doing well, and I know a lot of people do well, but others don't do, is a lot of people understand to this point, but now they miss the socialization at this, like still as a breeder, getting the dog out and exposure. Absolutely. This is, as you know, they call it the critical period of development. Yeah. It is absolutely critical. When we've got little pups and their eyes and ears are opening, we start gently introducing sights and sounds. When a puppy's ears and eyes start cracking for the very first time, like they've actually starting to see things move and they're hearing things, they get very sensitive to sound and light. So you need to be careful during that time. I recommend that you just let them have a few days of adjusting to the world. Don't mm-hmm. go in helter-skelter thinking, okay, now's the time to crank up a radio and just put it in the room. What I would recommend is let, because you'll notice sometimes you'll go into a room and you'll see puppies like twitch and move and squeal and carry on. 
And people go, oh, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with a the pup? There's nothing wrong with a pup. Pup's fine. It's just heard something for the first time in its life. Yeah. It's seen something for the first time in its life because for two weeks it was deaf and blind. Mm. But now all of a sudden there's new stimuli that's present to it that it's never experienced before. So let it go through that little range of motion. Let it experience those things in the world. And then finally what we're doing is we're starting to slowly introduce environmental stimuli. What I generally recommend is low-level sound effects CD, things that would um, cars, traffic, crowds, noises that are, are happening, let the puppies eat, let them know that when the CD comes on or anything like that, it can be a trigger. It can be like a, a Pavlovian effect for mm. them that uh, good things happen when sound happens. Yeah. So rather than shy from it, they actually look forward to it. They hear it and they start realising this is not a bad thing. So by the time we've introduced puppies, well, by the time they're starting to come out of the whelping box and they're starting to come into the world, they're not freaking out. They're not thinking, my God, there's a car coming down the road or there's a lawnmower in the background or anything like that. I mean, we have our gardener mowing the lawn on his ride-on around the puppies and they're just sitting at the pen looking at him. Mm -hmm. Instead of scattering around and running and hiding under the beds and terrified and squealing and trying to get out, they're just looking at him going, oh, would you look at that? Yeah, and that's the sort of thing every breeder should be doing, right? Those sorts of. I absolutely encourage it. It doesn't matter if you're doing it with dogs or kittens or birds or whatever. If you're not doing that type of work with your puppies, you're doing an incredible injustice and you're doing your future puppy owner, your future dog owner, an incredible injustice yeah. as well. It's funny, you're a talk, fool. You talk about the mower, exactly that. So when we got Val, Alex, who we got her from, you know, I didn't know. I, I know him now, but I didn't know him from Bar of Soap at the time. Is this the one that Sam just got his new Yeah, puppy he just off? got another one from him as yeah, well. Yeah, it looks great, great oh, looking pup, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the field springers are awesome, little mm. dogs. Anyway, you think you're doing the right thing and you like I, I been, went to his house when they were four weeks old and checked them out and spoke to him on the phone for hours sussing out you know, who is this guy that I'm going to buy a dog from? And he's also sussing me out as well. Who's this guy I'm going to sell a dog to? And you think you, you hope that he's doing all those things, but you don't know. Mm. And then he sent me a video when they were, you know, I think five or six weeks old of him mowing the lawn and they're all, there they are all like pressed against the chicken wire. Like, hey, we want to get on that mower and, and play mm. with it. So I was like, oh, perfect. This guy knows what he's doing. And he does. He breeds some excellent little dogs. But that's a little bit of a risk when you're buying a dog that you hope that your breeder's doing all those things because the people who just have them in their yard and or in a, a whelping pen area and they don't really experience much until you pick them up at eight weeks or whatever, there's a big opportunity loss there. So not only just an opportunity loss, you, you, you lose the opportunity to go forward in some exposure and you actually go backwards through a lack of exposure. Mm. I'm going to be careful how I say this because there's always an interpretation for people getting messed up on anything that you say. It'll be a trigger point for somebody. Triggered. Triggered. But there are people that openly look at things like this and say, yeah, I totally agree. And there's other people who go, oh, I strongly disagree. Mm -hmm. However, I would much rather risk taking my puppy out and the very, very slightest chance that it would be introduced to a pathogen over not socialising that dog. Yeah. That is, I mean, look, lack of socialisation is a much, it kills far more dogs in the world than pathogens do. Yeah. I will often say, and I didn't make this up, I've heard it from many, many people before, is if you, if you take your dog out young prior to all its vaccinations and everything, it does exist the possibility that it will be exposed and become sick. If you don't take your dog out, you're guaranteed that you yep. are causing problems. That's right. 
So it's a long shot that it might be introduced to a pathogen. That it's, risk exists. There's no, there's no does denying it absolutely that. exists. This is why we have vaccinations. This is why we believe in the miracle of science, that we can have our dogs vaccinated <laughs> and we can ensure that they can be safe against these pathogens. But it's not a guarantee. You, mm. can, you can have a vaccination. Look at the one for canine cough. People spend hundreds of dollars getting the dogs vaccinated against canine cough and in any situation, we see it at the kennels, we see it in social situations. I mean, my dogs have got canine cough when they haven't been anywhere near kennels or anything and they've been vaccinated against it. So it doesn't guarantee. And then people say, well, it lessens the chance or the duration it will happen. Well, I know people who have got the, gone and got the flu shot and then got the flu. Well, it's about strands. That's about strands. You get vaccinated against a particular strand, and, but you can still get others. Yeah, and you, you, you take that risk. And they mutate as well as we do know. Yeah. Again, please, if you're listening to this podcast and you're already outraged and triggered, settle down because I'm not suggesting that you go out and put your puppy in a dangerous situation. What I do tell people when I'm... And we're not anti-vaccination. Not anti-vaccination I'm pro-vaccination. You know I'm, pro- I'm vaccinated against the plague. <laughs> when people talk about uh, vaccinations, I'm like, mate, what I've you, got Are them. you planning on time travel? Uh, well, so a deployment I did in the army was to an area that no Westerner had been in maybe 100 years, and so they were like, you have to be vaccinated against everything. So did they have a guy going around with a cart saying, bring out your dead? <laughs> well, it, uh, evidently there was no plague there when we got there, but they, they essentially the the long and the short of it was we don't know what will be there, so you're getting the full suite. And, yeah, against the bubonic plague, I've been vaccinated. Wow. So when it comes back, I'm sweet. Don't know about you, No, I'm, I'm good fucked. to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good to go. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I am getting onto the whole thing. I am pro-vaccination for dogs. I believe in – and. You know, I've talked about this before, even though Narelle's a, a naturopath, even though she believes in natural medicine and good eating and healthy um, situations, both of us believe in science. We do believe in limited vaccinations. And what I do tell people, even when they've, when you've got puppies, absolutely, you need to go through the vaccination process. Yeah. When the dog's older, what I do tell people, and even the AVA changed their stance on it to vaccinating instead of every year in uh, getting your dogs tested to make sure your antibodies are still alive, and which is called the titer test or teeter test yeah. or whatever you want to I think call there's it. a whole podcast in that. There is. So we'll move on from there because- That's a rabbit's hole we could go It's down. a rabbit's hole and obviously there's people triggered and jumping around on the couch and- And laughing at me now for getting vaccinated against the plague. Well, probably. It hurt. It was actually the most painful needle I've ever had in my life. Really? Yeah. That could just be- the- I think the most painful needle I've ever had in my life is a B12 injection. Oh, yeah. That killed. Yeah. Yeah, that was- that was like getting concrete pumped yeah, into heard. my butt. Yeah, I've had those. Yeah. All right. So socialization, huge thing. Got to do it. Huge do thing, it, massive thing. Do it carefully. Do it properly. Don't do it haphazardly. Don't just go, good luck, puppies. Like here you are next to the side of the road as the trucks go past. It's incremental and slow. Incremental, and- slow. And stepping back a little bit because we've, you know, we sort of jumped in and out of the process. But while you've got your puppies seeing and hearing things, we're picking the pups up where, you know, I mean, obviously they're on scales every day, so Mm -hmm. they're getting that slow, gentle touching. But we're doing things like putting the puppies on different surfaces, letting them experience warmth and cold. We're trying to stimulate neurons in their brains to start developing because the more you're doing this, the longer the nervous system is growing in there. It's, It's like tree roots. If you're nourishing those tree roots, if you're putting them in an optimal condition, they will grow deep and strong. But they, in order, we talk about, even through Bart's course, being in a stressful situation sometimes helps you develop and grow. And yeah, a little bit of stress, a little yeah, bit of struggle. A little bit of stress, a little bit of struggle, and, and it, it's actually a good thing. So it helps the brain 
extend. So you're extending the nervous system, you're developing more neurons, you're even myelinating in some cases. So what we do want to do with these puppies is we do want to put them in situations where they're learning to deal with things. Mild stress is actually very good for you. Yeah. Long-term, long amounts of stress is not good for you. Yeah. It's the same thing that we talk about in the difference between a cure and a poison is the dose. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. So the rule on stress as I use it is that the struggle can never outweigh the hope. Yeah. So as long as the desire to, if you have an obstacle course for your puppies, as long as the desire to get to the obstacle course is greater than the the difficulty of doing it, you're Mm. doing it right. Absolutely. It's when you introduce too much struggle that the hope vanishes. That's when you get sort of learned helplessness and or just you end up in that stress cycle, Mm. which is a whole other thing we talk about. But that's the gist. Never let the struggle outweigh the hope. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. So if you're looking at a desensitization program, this is pretty much how we start puppy training off. Any Mm -hmm. desensitization program begins with the eliciting stimulus being present at a certain distance to the pups. And then what we do over time is we just decrease that distance to the puppies. So over time, we start moving it closer and closer and closer because ultimately what we want is to have a neutral effect. We just want them to look at it and go, oh, it's there, but who cares? The lawnmower is there, it's on. The motorbike is there, it's on. The other dogs are there, you know, they're playing, but there's food happening or there's something else happening. Mm -hmm. Somebody dropped a loud bit of tin, who cares? What I do want in some situations, now I don't want my dogs to become friends with the motorbike and want to come up and sniff it while it's running. I don't Mm -hmm. want dogs to go over and want to pick the lawnmower up like one of my Rottweilers used to like doing. Um, (laughs) Those sort of things are not suggested. What I do want them to do is to treat them as neutral stimulus, just background chatter. It's the things that we take for granted. You know, like if we hear a plane in the sky, if you're living in the Amazon and you've seen a plane go over the head and you're like a, a long lost tribe, to you that would be like it could be viewed as a god or something. What the hell is this? It could be terrifying like a great big bird of death. Mm-hmm. But to all of us, we hear a plane going overhead. We don't Means even nothing. you don't I mean you rarely look up and even acknowledge that it's there. Unless it sounds like it's bursting into flames and there's bits falling off it. Then you'll look up <laughs> into the sky. Yeah. Um, and we don't want that either. So for the triggered at home. Calm down. Calm down. What we do want is we want handling, we want exposure, we want we want these puppies very, very confident in all sorts of situations. And again, depending on what you're training those dogs for, you also want exposure to that stimuli as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're raising field dogs, you want field exposure, you know, that type of stimuli introduced. If you're raising working dogs, you want introduction to toys and tugs and things like that that are going to be playing. Because what we're also doing is while we're exposing the puppies to this stimuli, we're also grading the puppies for what we want as well. Yeah. When people have rang me up or a breeder up and they ring you up and say, I want a family pet, even in working dog puppies, you're not guaranteed that you're going to have an entire litter of working dogs. People will ring you up and saying, I want a a sable female and I want it to have some drive but not too much drive because I've got young children. So you might say, in this litter, I personally wouldn't recommend any of them. They're too high and drive. Or you might have three or four pups where you say they're going to be perfect, mm-hmm. quite gentle. There's two that I, I definitely wouldn't recommend. And I have a lot of people that will come out and look at pups and I'll say, oh, I really would like that one. I'll say, no, nah, you can't have that one. There was a lady who a while back she looked at the litter of pups online once and I sent her some videos because she was at quite a distance. And there was a gentleman who but there was two sable females and he looked at one and she looked at one and his requirements was more for a working dog where hers was more for a companion dog. She'd already picked the one that she wanted, but the one that she wanted, 
was too high in drive. Mm-hmm. And she came out and they both came together because I, I said, look, I think both you guys need to come together because I need to explain this to you so you can see what you want because she got in first um, and I honour everything. But I said, at the end of the day, I'm going to sit down and talk to you. I said, both these females are great. They've both got good drive. But this one is going to be more manic. And I said, in your situation, I know that you're going to be out with horses, you're going to be exposed to young children and so forth. I just don't recommend this female. The good thing about that was that she actually turned around to me and she said, look, I appreciate your honesty and I'm going to go with your advice. Yeah. Now, she took the, the little female that I recommend and sent me photos and videos of her over the years and said, Glenn, perfect dog, couldn't have asked for a better one. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that I actually listened to your advice. Mm-hmm. I don't try and talk people out of anything, but what I do want them to do is consider what they're going to have for the next 10 to 15 years. If they're fortunate enough for their dog to live to 15 years, what you're going to have and what you're going to endure. So it's not about just offloading a puppy and just cashing in on it. It's about letting people realize this is what you're going to get. This is what you have to endure. Mm-hmm. So that's a good time to talk about that's how to choose your dog's do the mating, gestate, raise the puppies. Yep. I've never done any of that, as I say. From my point of view, I have bought plenty, though. I, I have bought my own dogs. Well, and you've selected pups for people. And that's right. I, I mm. do this a fair bit. People ask me to find them puppies, and I do. The opposite side of that coin is checking that your breeder is doing all those things, right? Mm. So it, particularly if it's a breed you're not super familiar with, that's why I say, like, I have a long conversations with the breeders. Now, when I'm buying a puppy for someone or sourcing a puppy for someone, I get a really long brief about exactly what is it you want from this dog. Yep. Do you want to work it? Do you want a, a couch potato? Do What do you want, right? Mm-hmm. And why have you chosen that breed? And then, you know, I might have a conversation with them about maybe this is the, not, the best breed or not. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a good thing. conversation to have sometimes. Yeah, so once we, we settle on a breed and we know why they want it, for me, I really only will entertain the conversation with a breeder that is doing that same purpose with their dogs. So... If someone wants a, a working dog and they call their breeder and they say, oh, yeah, like this dog is suitable for that work, I want to know what their qualifications are to say that. And we see this a lot in, say, with IPO especially, people and mm-hmm. in German Shepherds will tell you, yeah, these dogs are suitable for IPO and you'll definitely be able to do it. They have all the drive and they have all that. Now, I would almost guarantee that a lot of those breeders would pass a polygraph in when they're saying that. They they believe it. They mean it. Yeah, they believe it. They truly believe it, but they also have no idea what they're talking about. Mm. So unless they're involved in the sport, I don't want to talk to them. Um, So if my client wants a couch potato and they're breeding couch potatoes, 100%, they're they're the ones I want to talk to. Yeah. But I want to know what the parents are doing and I'm less interested in like what shows they've won unless my client wants a pretty dog, but I want to know what are they doing with the dogs and how suitable are their dogs and how suitable are the parents because then they can give an accurate representation of the puppy's likelihood of being good at that. Mm. I had a guy from Melbourne ring me up about Max and he said to me, I really want a Max puppy. I want to know what he's like as a dog. I described him and, and sent him some videos. He said to me, how would you feel about me jumping on a plane, coming up to Sydney, putting a sleeve on and taking a bite from him? Because I really want to see if he's all that. Mm-hmm. I said, happy to. And he did. See you tomorrow. Yeah. He came up. He uh, made he made the time with me. He came in. He put a sleeve on. Uh, I said, do you want to put a suit on? He goes, nope. <laughs> uh, he said, mate, look, thanks heaps for your time. He bought a pup like, yeah. straight out. He just said, here's the deposit. I'm more than happy. He said, he's everything you described and more. 
my ambition, and I'm, I know yours is as well, is not to deceive people. No, that's right. You know, exactly. I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk a big game and then not. And it comes out. The dog grows up, and he is what he is. And yeah. if you've misled the person as to what that dog's going to be, it's an inevitable truth that dog is going to turn out the way it is. And then you get people blaming. Oh, well, you didn't do this right, and you didn't do that right. And it's just, it's just a bullshit cycle that I don't want nothing to do with. Yeah. Now, uh, can I just intervene there for a second? Because yeah. this is where the, the breeder handshake comes into place. Now, there have been times where you can produce the puppy. And it can have all the hallmarks of what you're suggesting it should be and what the person wanted. However, if that handshake isn't met on the other side, if they basically think, well, you've done everything, I don't need to do anything, wrong. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You now have the responsibility because that window is still open, that critical period window, that critical period of, of development. If you haven't done your due diligence in that time, you are asking for a disaster. Mm-hmm. Because you can crush everything that the breeder has tried to do. On the way home. On the way home. Bad experiences, if you're introducing that dog, if that dog is starting to have a compounding effect of bad experience after bad experience, goodbye future of the puppy. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons now actually for me now whenever I am sourcing a dog or and I will convince breeders to do this if I'm talking to them early enough is to introduce a clicker from the first meal. Yeah, great. Because then I've got antibiotics for any problems that I find. If Because the dog, you know, say if it's not socialized enough or if it's just a little bit timid or whatever, as soon as I'm leaving, I've got the clicker. I know how to change that dog's state of mind immediately. Yep. Like that, I can I can make it happy. So as we're leaving and he see, experiences something for the first time or he gets, he gets a bit sketchy at my house or whatever, I click, I give him a bit of food, he knows it straight away. I don't have to load and introduce a clicker. And for a dog that has had the clicker going from its first solid meal, that is a powerful conditioning effect that will snap them out of a behavior like you cannot believe. Mm. And especially if they've had to be competitive for their food. As they get a little bit older and when the, the breeder gives them just maybe like if there's five puppies and there's only, you know, four and a half puppies worth of food getting put down and you hear a click beforehand, then that means those dogs will work hard and they know that is important. That sound carries so much weight for them and will for their entire life. Mm. So that's if I talk to a breeder and they say they're unwilling to do that or they won't do it, then I go, okay, cool, like next. But you're also modifying and, and developing behavior at that time as exactly. well. All the benefits are there. Exactly. So as I was saying, I really only like to – if I'm going to buy a dog from a breeder, I want to know why they breed and that same purpose they breed is the only reason I want to take a dog from them. And then I don't give any – I don't like the idea of choosing a, a dog on on based on looks. I'm well known for saying that a dog could have one eye, floppy ears, no tail and three legs. If it does its purpose, it's a good mm-hmm. dog and I'm happy with it. And so, again, with, say, my two personal dogs I can give examples of, uh, the brief for Val was I, I said I just want the, a very stable high-drive dog. And he said, okay, I know the one. And it's funnily enough, when we went to pick her up, he said, which one do you want? And we said, oh, I like that one. He goes, that's the one we're talking about. He had the pictures of her from then young. It was, we're on net. He knew exactly the brief that I'd given. I mean, it was far more detailed than that. But the brief that I'd given, he had selected the, the puppy that represented that. Yep. Same as with Remy, my dog, I had no idea that I was getting Remy until he basically arrived, right? And, you know, we spoke about it earlier because he was the only normal Mally colored ones. The rest were all black and he was very distinguishable from the litter. But we said, I've got no idea which one I'm, I'm going to get. All things equal, I would have taken him. Mm. But Sam knows what I want to do. Sam knows all the people that want these dogs and he's going to allocate them appropriately. And he's the one I got. And, yeah, even, right. and even Bart said he's a perfect match. Perfect. It's, 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 he's exactly what you want. And he is exactly what I want. So I think that's important as well. Exactly as you say with the people turning up and wanting, I want the Sable one, I want this one, whatever. 
I don't want to go into those details. You get a dog for personality and the looks is, is second. If looks is your priority, then you have to accept that you get the personality that you get. Yep. One of the fortunate positions I'm in, like you are, is a lot of people contract me to selecting their puppy for mm-hmm. them. So if I'm not going out and choosing a puppy from somebody else's litter, I'm picking people's puppies for them in the litters that we're doing. Yeah. And that happens. Which I love doing, to be honest. It's it's a fun process. And I stay current with the person all through it. We, prior to that, when I'm actually interviewing people for puppy buying or sales, is people ring me or they'll message me through our Facebook site and we do what's called the psychological pushback. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do with people is I'm nice to them. I provide them all the information that they need about the puppy and where its parents come from. Any questions they ask me, I'm happy to ask them. But then I'll show them a little bit of disinterest. And it's not to be rude to them or be elitist or anything like that. I just see who really wants a puppy and who doesn't, who's kicking tires and who's lighting fires. Yeah. So what I really want to see is do you really want this puppy or is it just a novelty? Did you just see it on Facebook? Or did you just see it on our site and just go, oh, it's beautiful. I have to have a little baby puppy. Is your or, kid harassing you? And exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll get and one. And they're the things that I don't want. And I've I've been blatantly honest with people before and I've told them, I'm sorry, I just don't think one of our pups is for you. People ask me outrageous questions sometimes. I just think, oh, I just don't like where this is going. Mm-hmm. The one time that I did buckle and I did compromise on my stance on that was I should have listened to my gut. I sold a pup. Fortunately, I rescued it from them. We have a contract that basically says if we believe that you're not looking after the dog, we have the right to take it from you at your cost. Yeah. So right. yeah. So I took the I took the dog back and rescued it and rehomed it. Yeah. Right. So uh, years ago, when I bred Rottweilers, a similar thing happened. Friends of mine that lived it was a country Victoria. Friends of mine that lived up there, I, I rang them and said, "Look, I've lost contact with this person. Could you do me a favor and just go round?" and see how the dog's doing because I've rang them so many times they won't respond to any of my calls. They went around and had a look at the dog. They took photos. Back then we didn't have iPhones and everything like that. It was mm. just like slide photos. Mm-hmm. So they took photos of the dog, sent it to me. The dog looked shit. It was living in squalor. Like it was ribs and bones. It was flea-ridden. It was living in its own shit. So I drove three hours up there. They weren't home. I took the dog. I jumped the fence. So I took the dog. How and dare you? How dare I, Yeah. So they rang me up and I left my card and everything I told them, but I also left photos of, of the condition of the dog. Mm. And they rang me out and said, you've stolen our dog. I said, I've called the RSPCA. I've sent photos to them as well. We can either, I'm happy to press charges against you. I said, if you want the dog back, I'll give it to you. Once the RSPCA have had a look over the dog, they said, oh, maybe you should just keep the dog. Mm. And I said, what kind of fuck we get the dog to do that to it? That's what I don't understand. <sighs> look, I don't know, mate. I, you know, what, what kind of person has children and does those horrific things to children? Yeah. We talk about bad dog owners, but there's plenty of shitty parents out there oh, as well. Oh, yeah, of course. You can't always get it right. Look, sometimes people have kids with great intentions of being good parents, but they fall out of love and, you know, then yeah. the kids become uh, like a game of roulette to them where yeah. spin the wheel and whatever happens, happens. And it's the same with puppy owners. Some puppy owners are, uh, are just shit people. They turn out okay, but something changes in their mind. They just fall out of love. And when you fall out of love, anything can happen. So as a breeder, you then need to think, well, I can never produce more dogs than I'm willing to have to take back at some point, right? Like that's the that's the reality is that we'll not produce more dogs, but you should always be prepared 
and tell people that if your circumstances change and you can't afford this dog or whatever happens, you always have the ability to give that dog back to me. Mm. You can always bring it back no matter what. I will take the dog back. I will either keep it or find it a new home or whatever whatever your process is then after that. Yeah. But don't let this dog deteriorate into shit conditions and don't give it a bad life. If for whatever reason you're unable to provide that good life, bring it straight back. And so by that logic, there should be no, well, like this is where rescues could almost cease to exist if people actually followed through with that shit, right? That's an unfortunate thing is that a lot of situations are that people find convenience and giving up easy. Mm. And this is why we have that psychological pushback with people is because I want to see how much do you really want this dog. Mm -hmm. Now, that could be a right now thing as well. And you can't always get that right. There's no guarantees in life. But what you do need to do is you do need to have the understanding that sometimes that dog is going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. And we had one of our males return to us a while ago and he looked, to be honest, he wasn't in good shape when he came back. He was nervous and skiddy and it took us a fair bit of work and thanks to one of my colleagues at work, they spent a fair bit of time with him. And the new owners who came to look at him, we explained it, just said he's not the puppy we sent out. And they said, oh, look, we're happy with the way he is. You know, they said we don't expect him to be this, that or the other. We just wanted a black shepherd and he's better than some of the other dogs we've gone to have a look at. Yeah. And they're doing a great job with him. They had a bit of an issue introducing him to their other dog. We offered some free training and some free advice for him. Again, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and back up your service. So, I mean, there's been times where people have, look, I get questions all the time on pups where people are ringing me or sending me questions on Facebook and saying, oh, puppy's done this, puppy's done that. It comes with the service. Don't then put my hand out and say, well, you have to pay for it. Mm. There, In saying that, there are services that we do provide where people come in and do extracurricular work with their puppies and they pay us for it. Mm. But a lot of times the services are free. Yeah. We have a large network now of breeders that sell their puppies with our video series. So they buy them in a batch mm. at a reduced rate and um, we just create the logins for all the owners. Yeah, perfect. And the so the owner, there's no, they've paid for it in the purchase of the puppy, mm. but they get handed over with a login to our video series and it's, you know, follow this. And then the people we have doing it have said they've had a, a marked rate, a reduced rate in calls like, hey, the dog's doing this, dog's doing this, because they've got that step-by-step guide available to them. So shameless plug, if any breeders out there want to get involved in that, send me a message because we do it for half price to the breeders because they and they just add that on to the price of the puppy. So it's negligible. Yep. Like if you're buying a couple of thousand dollar puppy, 50 bucks on top of that is really nothing to add or some breeders just absorb it, whatever. And the success rate with the follow through from that has been excellent. And we recommend it for our puppies as well. Like when we've uh, had a litter or just randomly, we put it on our site and say, if you're restricted in getting to a puppy school, this is the minimum what you need to do, you know, yeah. get onto this site and jump on and do it. And I mean, what you and Sam did with that was a great service. Yeah, well, we're still, like I say, it's not how I'm raising puppies at the moment, but it's still for the average pet person, it's perfect. And it, it's it everything they need to know to mm. to raise their puppy. And, and just exactly the things that, like we spoke about one time about a dog crying in the crate, like people just don't tell you that shit. And so we explain that and we show poor little baby Valerie crying her eyes out in the, in the crate. <laughs> But the, the whole process of her calming down, and that's what I think I know a lot of breeders get hassled by, like, oh, it's crying, and then you got to just field that conversation, and it's going to. That, yeah. that's, that's what a puppy's going to do. Yeah, and we, always tell, that. we always tell people when they're buying a puppy that, or when they've taken a puppy, I said, now be prepared for hell week yeah, or, or two. Right. And I said, this could be the, the most interrupted sleep that you've had for a long, long time. Yeah. And we talk about the whole extinction process and how they need to work through that as well. Yeah. 
It's a disaster. I, like how many have I had in the last two years? I think I've had five different puppies that, you know, for some period, most of them while they're just waiting to be old enough to fly out of the country, I've had them and it's a fucking headache. Oh, it's horrible. In my little house, yeah. we have we have the underground storeroom I call the crying room. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, but that's my process and I've got it down to an art now. I can yep. get, a, I can get a, a dog comfy in the crate very quickly, but with little high drive mallies that like to scream yeah they they can they pu- really they push the they push the point i think you went said that with brandy she just went nuts no it was that the black one i had before her that was the worst scream oh, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. a disaster my neighbors thought i was killing the dog and yep. i've followed up because she's in the states now she still does the same thing she just loves to scream like mm. she's being murdered when she's in a kennel it was a disaster that was nearly the last puppy we we're ever allowed to get jane was like nah this is too much I've um, actually got a, uh, a good video I might put on on the link when we do the album of, of Randy trying to smash in to get into his crate. Yeah, um, to get into it. To get into his crate. Yeah, right. Because we, as a puppy, we spent a lot of time teaching him to love the crate. Yeah. Like he gets excited and he just feels that the crate is euphoric. Mm-hmm. When he sees it, he gets excited about it and that's simply through training processes. Yeah. So let's talk about that sort of stuff now. So we've got people who've got the raising, the handover of the puppy. Mm. Now, something I see on Facebook a lot is I see lots of really snazzy puppy training videos with people doing really cool stuff and puppies that can do a lot of little tricks and things. What I don't see is a lot of dogs doing the same. So my opinion these days is that too many people put too much into their puppies and they try to teach too much. And I've been guilty of this in the past, 100% I've done it. But I'm fortunate enough to cycle through them often enough to learn from my mistakes and not be 15 years before I get another one. I just see so many people doing so many things and like teaching a puppy a puppy at 12 weeks that will hold a long down. Like I, I couldn't dream of doing that. My dog can barely hold a long yeah, down at I've, 15 months old. I've got a, a thought on that and I usually call it Michael Jackson syndrome mm-hmm. whereas I believe that Michael Jackson had way too much pre- and even he said it himself in many of his yeah. biographies that his father and during his career he was expected to do too much as, as a young child which yeah. vastly had a lot of Behavioural problems. It had a lot of behavioural problems. Yeah, it had a lot of behavioural problems for him as an adult. He really reflected on what happened to him as a child. I think you've got to look at your puppy and consider that same factor, is that if you're putting a lot of, and I know people have burnt puppies out before. Yeah. Well, you see it all the time and I shudder. I see people on Facebook like, look, I've got this puppy and I'm doing all this stuff with it and I think, oh, stop. Like they're not doing anything that would hurt the puppy. They're just doing too much. Just got to remember, you literally have a baby. Yep. This is you're trying to teach a baby maths. I think it's part of that narcissistic movement where people are. It's more about them than it is about the puppy. Yeah, you know, oh, they're, 100%, they're, they're yeah. more trying to highlight. Look at me. Look at me. Whereas they're not looking at the aversive signals that the dog or the puppy is flagging. Yeah. It's saying. Yeah, okay, well, I'm not comfortable I'll in this whole process. Again. I'll do it again, I'll do it again. So rather than enjoying the obedience and learning to love it, the dog is hating it. Mm-hmm. And that is when you're talking about being thoughtless and cruel, you'd have to factor in those sort of yeah. considerations. You know, but I, like not to lump everyone, I see lots of awesome little puppy videos. Cause, so at, for that sort of, for me now doing that eight to eight weeks to she's almost six months, I'm just playing with the dog and teaching it to be active and mm-hmm. those sorts of things, engagement. If you're if you're luring and just getting the dog chasing around, you know, the box feeding is a huge one for me. It's what I do with puppies right from the get-go. Exactly as you said with Randy loving the crate, I'm teaching the dog. So really all I'm doing is with a puppy when I get one now, it's all I care about is making it strong. Short duration and if they love it, 
Fantastic. Yeah, that's it. But yep. for teaching behaviors, I couldn't care less. I just want to teach the dog, like, this is how your life runs. So, you know, your management of your mm. house, because you need, that's what you need straight away. This is where you sleep. This is your crate. This is you love the crate to feed you in there, you know, whatever. And then I just want exposure and making that dog strong. Really small increments of the, here's a little bit of stress, but here's the outcome, the, the positive outcome in the end. And socialization, taking that dog everywhere. Well, here's the principal key point that I think people need to adhere to is make sure that before the window closes, you develop a strong foundation, a yep. solid foundation, which you can build from there. And this is really the the critical point, well, it's a critical development point, is that once you have strong footings, you can go up and up and up on each level. And the way I describe it to people is the same way that a developer would build a skyscraper or that you would hope that they would build a skyscraper with very, very deep, solid footings, Mm -hmm. a a massive foundation that's going to support the size of the building that you're trying to develop on top of it. And this is a good analogy. Well, if you think about it, anybody who's involved in any type of construction, any type of building, if you went to them and said, I've got land here, and this is always the analogy I talk about with NDTF students when we're talking about this as well, I've got land, I want to build over here. And you have somebody come out and they do surveys on your land and they look around and they say, I would definitely not build there. The ground is soft. Your footings are going to have to be massive to try and get the house to stand up over there because it's it's like a swamp in that corner. Mm-hmm. But over here, there's a massive sandstone shelf. If you built your house on top of here, it would be here for the next 500 years. It won't move. It won't crack. It won't shift around. It's going to be, this is the perfect place to build it. Now, you have to listen to people when they have that sort of industry knowledge. It's the same thing when you're talking to people involved in breeding or people who are involved in puppy training. When they have that sort of industry knowledge and they're giving you that advice, if you're not listening to them, you again, you need to have your head checked mm. because they're giving you sound advice because that window is a limited time. Six to 16 weeks is, is roundabout where they say, it opens and closes. Yeah. If you ignore that and you start doing stupid things in that time and then you wonder why your dog's nervous and got issues when it didn't have it as a puppy, well, you have to take some, uh, some blame why. for that as well. Yeah. So in that period for me, like I say, there's a couple of little behaviors that I'll teach just so that I can play some shaping games. And if the dog never gets those behaviors down pat in those, I don't care, as long as we did it during the games. We, the game is what's important. The desired outcome is not. Like I talk about that with people with their positions, like you sit down stand, right? You could spend weeks and weeks and weeks or months teaching that to a young dog and shaping it and and doing it really slowly, or you can just get a strong dog and teach it in a week, right? Mm. Like there's no point. I'd much rather I'd much rather enjoy the process of making a strong dog and then teach those behaviors in a method that is quicker with a dog that enjoys the engagement and wants to learn rather than trying to convince a puppy to play with me. I want I want the puppy to push me to play. Yep. So I just do that. I just expose a dog, take them everywhere. When I have puppies, they, they pretty much live in my van. They come out, they go everywhere with me basically and they come out. Whenever I turn up anywhere, they get out first, toilet them, walk them around, engage them a little bit, play a few games, put them away, then I do whatever I'm doing there and then I do the same before I leave. Puppy mm. comes out, goes around. So I take them pretty much everywhere I Which go. Which is why your dogs aren't stressed about car travel and they aren't stressed about Going to new locations. Yeah. And, and, every new, lo- it's and a- new locations are new opportunities. That's what they see. Yep. And I'm very lucky in Valerie is such a mummy. And Birdie actually was explaining some interesting things like the psychology behind that in that she's so protective of puppies that we have. She she really loves them. And I actually have a video of her object guarding a puppy mm. from another dog, like actually sitting on it, exactly like you would imagine watching a French ring object guard. <laughs> um, 
because there was a Sharpe, she couldn't get a read on it. And she's like, nah, you can't engage with this puppy because I'm protecting it. And meanwhile, it was Brandy actually that she was doing it with. The dog had no idea that was even going on. She had no idea that there was an element of danger she's in because Valerie took that from us. So I'm very lucky in that regard. So Val it does a lot of my puppy raising for me and does a lot of the socialization work because there is risk in socialization if you have a bad experience. You know, as, as we've discussed, it's a fine line between this is all going really well and this is a positive experience that's going to add to the the psychological strength of my dog and then something outside your control happens and now this is a bad experience that's going to impact my dog negatively. Yep. You need to be prepared to to rectify, to first of all, stop that situation and then rectify it if it happens. And that's where, for me, the strong marker is involved. So if my dog engages with something or sees something and it, it, it's about to have a negative experience, I can click and bring it straight around to a positive experience and then manage it as much as possible. But as I say, I'm very lucky and Val helps me with that a lot. She controls the environment to the extent that a Springer Spaniel can to make sure the puppies have a positive experience, which is just innate to her. You'd have to be careful in that situation. For an experienced person like you with what you're talking about, I understand that. Yeah. However, for a person who has shaped a clicker from a very young age, if the dog was having a negative situation and they marked the dog during that time, there could be a aversive yeah, compound on that as well. That possibility exists, of course. It yeah. does. So that comes with experience and that comes with education in knowing what you're doing mm-hmm. to bring the dog out of that negative situation. So for you, perfect. Yeah. And this is sometimes where it has to be one of those things is do as I say, don't do as I do. Mm. Um, so for your average Jono at home who's got a puppy, they do need to be careful about that situation, mm. which is why they need to work with people involved in in raising and training puppies well. So on those type of things, I 100% support what you're doing because I know that you understand it. Mm. But for people at home, your average person won't follow through with a clicker yeah, as much as you want them to. And this is where I get a little bit frustrated and I've said this before and I will say it time and time again. I get very frustrated with people who push a movement of training with a dog and they say this is the way to do it. But what you're not looking at and what you're not taking into consideration is these people are fanatics. Mm. They are absolute fanatics about training. They are living, breathing, and they don't stop doing anything. They stop as soon as they finish work, out training the dog. Yeah. On the weekends, training their dog. Their friends are dog people. Their life is about training the dog. When they're showing videos of themselves working dogs, what people aren't realizing is these people have no life other than training their well, dog. Well, and the thousands of man hours that's gone into that. And I have no problem with that. I don't have any issue with that. I think that's great if you've found a love and a passion that you want to do. I support it. I have no issue with it whatsoever, except don't try and hoodwink the public that it's an easy solution to pull your conceived methodology over to fixing everything they want to do. If they want to get on board and they want to do it, it needs to be explained to them this is a part-time job. Yeah. You have to do it. Otherwise, don't expect to get to where I've got. These same results. Yeah. We actually explain that in our video series. We 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 don't use a clicker. Val didn't use a clicker going out. We use just a verbal marker. Yeah. And we acknowledge in the video series that a clicker is better, but unrealistic. Yeah. And that the average person just isn't going to do it. Uh, you know, I walk around the clicker hanging off my wrist all the time, but the average person is not going to follow through. The average that. person is so preoccupied with whatever. They're just, they're flat out with their kids. They're flat out with life. And the thought of having a dog running around in their, in their kitchen or their house is is wonderful, but that's about where all they really want to do is stop the dog jumping on their children yeah. and running out the door, okay, yeah. or biting the next door neighbours. So there's a combination of things. And really they come down to 
don't disrupt my life too much. Mm. They're not as fastidious as people like you and I. Mm. They don't care how well the dog flips or if it's going to do, you know, a long stay or anything yeah, like yeah. that. It has no relevance or impact on their life. They're not going to do it's it. just got to fit into their life. It, it has to fit into their life. So the bread and butter work in going out there and working with people. Now, I believe in giving people more than what they need, but are they going to follow it through? The answer is no. Usually no. Yeah. Now, I've, I can tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've worked with thousands of people. I've trained hundreds and hundreds of dog trainers. And every person I come back to, they come back and say, you're right. They're not going to do it. They, mm. they just, and that you feel when you're initially doing this, when you don't come to that recognition, you feel very violated that people aren't taking on board all your years of knowledge, all the training, all the seminars that you've been to, and all they want to do is stop the dog jumping on their children. <laughs> and yet you're just sitting there smashing them with information. Yeah. You know, I know we're sort of digressing from the whole puppy thing, but yeah. this is relevant in dog training 101. Yeah, yeah. It's of one of the things that people really need to come to terms with and accept because if they don't, it's going to mess with your brain big time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what else on puppies? I reckon that's that's pretty much it for me. That For me, that is the main thing and I'm harping about it nonstop and everyone I talk to, the most important thing when you have a puppy is to make it strong and give it positive experiences everywhere you can and then worry about the finer details of training later. Well, if that's the message you're giving people, then that's a sound message because yeah. I, I think setting the pup up, developing a good footing with it or good foundation with the dog developing all that and making sure that, you know, optimum nutrition, optimum exposure, and then developing them into an adult dog or into a, even a, you know, an, a juvenile adult dog that is receptive to training, wants to train and wants to engage in your household. What more could you ask for? Yeah. In working dogs, you often hear the term, we're trying to create a big engine with no brakes. And then we install the brakes later yeah. because when you put in too much brakes early, that's when you sort of go into demotivation. And a lot of the times if you just, as exactly as you just said, if you want to catch potato and you just want a dog that sits around and does nothing, yep. then that's, that's fine. But if you're, if you want that, you're not listening to this podcast. I watched a good, it was a brief article and I, I'd love to find it because it was perfectly done. There was a child banging away on a, a piano and the parent said, Oh God, that sounds horrible. Can you stop making that stupid noise? And you just saw the look on the child's face. And there was another video of a child banging away on the keyboard. And the father walked over to the child and said, how about we learn to start making it sound nice yeah, together? Yeah. And then, you know, you fast forward and that child's a famous pop star and yeah, so yeah. forth. Because It's that frame, the it, frame it, of reference. It is that framework because you, rather than having all those stops and being told no, it's developing that creativity and allowing it to flourish. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a good analogy. I've never heard that before, but I really like it. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. Big engine, no brakes. Yeah. Put the brakes in later. Mm. And then I think, you know, with puppies is be prepared for the disaster that they are. They're, they're a headache. They destroy everything. There's an awesome meme. I'll, I'll definitely find it because I think Andrew's doing a post. I'll be able to track it down with a, a really cute Mally puppy sort of trotting along and the, it says, on my way to wreck your shit. <laughs> and, that's, and that's just them, right? They destroy Look, everything. Are, puppies are nightmares because people talk about puppies with their terrible behavior it's to them it's just behavior yeah that's it's right all experimental all yeah. they're doing is they're just 
drifting through life. They're just working out what they can and can't do. Yeah. And just know? fulfilling themselves. They're uninhibited. Like I'm having a good time and this is all I care oh, about. It's like little babies. I mean, they pull, you know, as soon as they can get up to um, table height, they're just thinking, look at all the shit I can reach. Yeah, that's it. They have no idea that what they're going to do could hurt them, poison them, kill them mm-hmm. or annoy the shit out of their parents. All they're doing is they're just thinking, this looks nice, shiny, bright. Mm. Give me, give me, give me. And they grab it and put it in their mouth. And that's effectively what puppies are doing as well yeah. is just going through the exploration role of life and looking to fulfill needs and roles and interests until they learn the aversive or the appetitive side to it. Yeah. So on that, my advice then for people is, and what I do with puppies and and this has worked particularly well with Remy, he can be in, like he's a lunatic, but he can be in the house and be relaxed is that I condition that lower frame of arousal in the house. So I let him out, we go do some crazy stuff and he gets to blast himself. But puppies, you know, they're, they're pretty much just eating, sleeping, pooing machines. Yep. So he gets to run around, he's had some food, he's done his poo and now he comes in the house and he sleeps. Mm. And so he conditioned like when you're in the house, you just relax. And because he was, he was going to do that anyway, I got him to the point where he's tired or whatever. I identify that and now I bring him in. Okay, now's your free time in the house. You're, you're empty, so I know you're not going to poo and wee in the house and you're tired, so I know you're not going to go and tear the couch to pieces. This is the time to be in the house. And if you control that for the first, you know, 16 weeks, as you say, the dog gets to realise, okay, when I'm in the house, I chill out. And, yep. and it definitely works for him. He can be level 11 out of 10 crazy jumping around and then he comes in the house and he walks. Because at my house, as you know, I don't have a like side gate or anything. To get from the back, you have to go through the house. So he can manage... Most of the time, as much as any Malinois can, he can get through the house without having a conniption and then on the other side does backflips and is, okay, let's go to work. We Look, we had a terrible time time in a toilet train, both Opie and, and Ladybug. They were pissing all over the place, but we just had to be diligent. Mm. And one of the things with puppies is you can't be lazy. Yeah, that's you know, right. You've got to get off your ass. My rule of thumb is when they've woken up, they need to go to the toilet. If they've had anything to eat or drink, they need to go to the toilet. Every hour, they need to go to the toilet. It's a little baby with no nappies on. You need to be diligent. You need to get active. If you're a lazy SOB, get off your butt. Yeah. Or don't have a pup. It's as simple as that. If if you're not going to do the – you can't get mad at them for pissing when they can't hold, when their bladder can't contain it any longer. Yeah. And if all the hallmarks are there, the sniffing of the wandering off into another room and you're not getting them up to – pick them up and take them outside and queuing them for toilet, like potty or toilet or whatever like that and having the celebration of going to the toilet outside so they know the do's and don'ts around it, Yeah. then what can you do? I think that's a big barrier to a lot of people. Like so when I have a young puppy, say 8 to 11 or 12 weeks, I get up probably twice in the night because I have them in crates. Mm. Not always. If they're going to be an outside dog then they're and they're at my house for a period, then they're just outside, fine, they do whatever. Yep. Um, I have kennels outside they can come and go from, it's fine. But if they're crated, you've got a responsibility. Yeah, so I cut off water at like 7, yep. they're in the crate at say 9, and then at midnight I let them out, and then at probably 2 or 3 in the morning I let them out as well, and yep. then at 6 in the morning I let them out as well. And it's a fucking headache. That is a pain it in is. the ass to pain, do. It's a pain in the ass. But you know what also is a pain in the ass? Cleaning shit out of the inside of a crate. Yeah. So I'd rather That they've that. jumped in and smeared all over the place and yeah. finger-painted all over. Look, yeah. Dad, I've made a mural. Exactly. And mm. and then I end up with dogs, then you, you do learn the difference in, hey, I need to get out. So both my dogs will tell me, hey, I need to get out of this crate and I believe them when they tell me that because they know that the I will let them out. It's not They're not just stuck in there, going to be stuck with their own shit in the crate. Mm. Both my dogs have uh, – if, if they're barking, if it's a – there's a – you know, you can tell the difference 
and they have a particular like, hey, I need yep. out. And if I hear that, it, for me, talk about conditioned response. That's me like running down the stairs, <laughs> screw like to get there to let them out as quick as possible because they don't bullshit me in that regard because they know they've learned along the way. I don't want them empty. And that's not a crate. bad cue for a puppy to develop. Like, yeah. hey, I'm I need to go. Yeah, you know, like there's been times where Opie is banged on the door. And I've heard him banging on the door and I haven't got up to him. And next thing I know is there's a puddle of piss there. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that's that's my fault. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I don't even look at him with anything except I think I feel bad for him because I made him endure that yeah. and, and didn't get up. Now, he look, to be honest, he hasn't pissed in the house for ages except the other day when we did a podcast and he wanted when to When he was banging door. on the door. When he was banging on the door. Yeah. But and we're like, that, God, I wonder if people can hear that. That wasn't actually I need to go to the toilet. That was an anxiety thing because yeah, yeah. he wanted to get in the room and jump on the couch with us. So. Mm. Wanted a podcast. He wanted a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably it on puppies. That's a long yeah. Well, episode. this has actually been a long podcast, so yeah, uh, it's been a good one. I've actually thanks, enjoyed it. It seems for to, enduring us if you've made it to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you found this as interesting as uh, what we have in discussing it because puppies are a big thing. It's you know, fun to talk shit about puppies, and and as I say, we both experience a lot of them, and they're. No two are the same. They've all got their own little personalities and what you tried for one is not going to work with the other and you just got to deal with the dog in front of you. But I think the, the tenants is get a good one, do your research, check everything out. Then if you're listening to this and you've got a pet store dog, well, you just deal with the dog that you have and you make the best of it. In fact- And set up your foundation. Yeah. And then from when you get that dog in your hands, start doing everything as well as you possibly can and and there's heaps of information about that and, you know, shameless plug again for my video series, mskennels.com. It, it is this walkthrough We'll put it up guide. in the link so you can have a look at it. Yeah. And if you're not, if you haven't had a look at it, spend a bit of time having a, a bit of a go over it. So at yeah, least we're, you. Like I say, we're still really proud of it and we've never had negative feedback on it. And for raising a pet, it's everything you need to know. It's mm. everything you need to know. Like I say, for me personally now, because I, I like dealing in working dogs more, I don't do a lot of the things we do in that video series, but that's because, as I say, I like to build the biggest engine I possibly can without putting any brakes in. Like yep. Remy at 15, 16 months he is now, he can't hold a long down. There's no way he'll down for more than like 10 seconds, but I've never tried because I don't want that. I don't want that capping. But for pet dog people, they certainly do want that. Mm. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think that's that summarized it quite well. Yeah. It's fun to talk about puppies. Let's do another one about puppies sometime soon. Yeah, we will have any doing- specifics. Yeah, please give us some feedback. Look, some of the feedback has been fantastic and the suggestions that we're getting from people who are listening to the show, I can't tell you how much both of us enjoy talking to you about it. Some of the comments that people have left, even some of the PMs that people are sending us. Yeah, we're getting saying, it, it, We are. We're actually getting a lot now where people are saying, really enjoying the show, love to hear you talking about this. So please keep them coming, guys, because we we love picking out some of the topics that we're going to talk about and we'd love to continue doing that. So, And also to add, another shameless plug, 13 locations around the world that uh, oh, yeah. Canine Paradigm has been listened to. So yeah. some of the places I just wouldn't expect that people would be. Yeah, it's a bit be, weird, hey. It is, yeah. It's weird. But we need to pick up our game in South America and Russia where there's no one. So uh, help spread the word. Try and get us in. Uh, <laughs> if you in, know anyone in Russia, yeah, send, tell, them a link. send them a show and say, hey, you should be listening to this. Just, just get them to download one episode and then we, we hit but the Then stats. we've got another location just around one. the world. That's all we need. And we get a little star <laughs> on the map again. Yep. Uh, that in Africa, we're pretty sure. Oh, we, there's, there's a couple in South, South Africa. Africa right? South Africa. But yeah, Russia. But up there north we need. Um, so yeah, we've got it in China. So Russia we haven't. Some of the European countries. So France, come on, lift your game. Um, <laughs> we need to start speaking French. And that if we if we start doing an episode in French, then that'll hit Africa as well. I'll get Sam on. He speaks French. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's it for another episode. Uh, as always, if you like what you're hearing, jump on to whichever subscription service you download us through, leave us a review. Doing that helps us get in touch with people we can't just harass. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is on Facebook. You can send us a PM or you can write publicly. Either way, it's up to you. And we'll be back with more sometime soon. Glenn, music, please. <laughs>